You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. It has been a big week for news across the world of minor league baseball as we welcome you into this week's edition of the Show Before the Show podcast from MILB.com. Hi, everybody. I'm Tyler Mon. Sam Dykstra is in New York City for episode number 73. Hi, Sam. Hi, Tyler. Um, this is a crazy week. Yeah, this is a very busy week. Um, it's going to be dominated with this talk of realignment. I mean, it's it may be one of the biggest things that happened in minor league baseball uh, you know, since I've been here, which is this is now my fifth season. And just in terms of the landscape of an entire level, just gets completely changed. I yeah. mean, we, we've, we've talked you know, to Ben, we've talked amongst ourselves, all that kind of stuff about relocation, teams moving, all this kind of stuff. This is not only te- two teams moving, relocating, uh, but also two leagues completely changing, um, you know, affiliations changing. There's just so many moving parts to this that uh, we're going to talk a lot about it with a lot of different people today. We'll get into the details of it here in just a moment. Before we do, you can find the show before the show podcast, the minor league baseball podcast on iTunes and on the Stitcher app. Now we've been there for a few weeks. So if you get your podcast through Stitcher, you can find us there. Uh, We're on Twitter as well. Sam is at Sam Dykstra, M-I-L-B, and I am at Tyler Mon. And of course, minor league baseball is at M-I-L-B. You can get in touch with the show there. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us, podcast at M-I-L-B.com. And if you find us on iTunes, on Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcast, give us a rating and a review and a subscription, and uh, we would be ever so grateful. So let's get started on this conversation. Three Strikes, we're going to open with just some details of what's going on before we get into Three Strikes. So in case you've missed it, in case you've been focused on Major League games as of the last week or so, uh, here is the official word from minor league baseball. And this came down two days ago. We're recording this on Thursday on Wednesday, the 24th on Monday, we got this release from minor league baseball quote, Minor League Baseball today announced that the Class A Advanced Carolina League will add two teams for the 2017 season as part of a broader realignment at that level of play. The California League's Bakersfield Blaze and High Desert Mavericks will cease operations at the completion of the 2016 season. The 2017 season will see a return of professional baseball to Kinston, North Carolina. Kinston served as the home of Carolina League clubs from 1956 to 1957, 62-74, and 78-2011. through 2011. Several locations are under consideration for the second Carolina League club, with Fayetteville, North Carolina, having made steady progress toward a stadium that would see play beginning with the 2019 season. Fayetteville served as home of a Carolina League club from 1950 to 1956 and as the home of a South Atlantic League club from 1987 through 2000. Those are... The bare bones details. And like Sam said, we're going to talk a lot about this on the show today. Uh, Dan Bespris, who is the radio voice of the Bakersfield Blaze, will join the show coming up in just a little bit. Uh, Our own Benjamin Hill, obviously, who's been covering the business side of this move, will join the show. But really... You know, like you said a minute ago, Sam, this is one of the biggest stories since either of us has been uh, involved in minor league baseball. Uh, my time actually goes back to the Carolina League. I started in the minors in 2009, but with the site now three years, you've been with the site five years. Um, this is huge. I mean, this could theoretically, you could make the argument this is the biggest franchise involved news item since the dissolution of the American Association in the 90s, in which AAA switched to two leagues instead of three leagues. Uh, this is it's it's massive though. We don't see contraction, we don't see realignment the way that this is happening virtually ever. Right. And and what makes it so interesting, you know, for this podcast purpose, for our site purposes, just for minor league talking purposes, is that there's so much to sink your teeth into here. I mean, not only are two teams leaving, so the the you know, we're as you mentioned, we're gonna talk to Dan Brespis and he's gonna give you the perspective of somebody who's working in a front office in which, you know, in a in a month won't exist anymore. I mean, so what is that process like? What is the process of, you know, two front offices, two organizations, two clubs ceasing operations completely? Then from the other side, what is the operation, you know, like when two clubs are growing uh, organically? We have the the club in, Clins- in uh, Kinston that's going to be using a past ballpark, but Fayetteville potentially, you know, there's other discussions of other cities in North Carolina. Um, you know, how is that going to grow? So we have that point of view. What is what is going to happen to the California League? What's going to happen to the Carolina League? What happens to the players? I mean, we're talking about the Rangers changing their Class A advanced affiliates. What does that mean, you know, for Rangers prospects going forward? 
who don't have to play, you know, in the extreme hitters park that is, you know, high deserts, Maverick Stadium. Um, you know, there's just so many different angles to come at this from. Ben later will talk about the, the business point of view uh, and the ballpark point of view. That's what makes it so interesting for us. I mean, we'll, we'll dig into that a lot today. Um, but, you know, it, to I think our job here to, at the beginning is just to focus on the baseball aspect. You know, what is this going to mean for the prospects? And, you know, as I kind of touched on, you know, getting out of high desert, you know, is, is not – I think any team that had been affiliated with High Desert in the past, uh, you know, it used to be the Mariners. Now it's the Rangers. Uh, nobody particularly wanted to be there just because it's such an extreme hitters park. Uh, I, I ran some park factors today for the 2016 season. Uh, when one is neutral, High Desert had a, a home run factor of 1.5, which means that you're 50% more likely to hit a home run in High Desert than you are in a normal completely hitting neutral pitching neutral ballpark uh run factor was 1.3 making meaning you're 30 percent more likely so it's really tough to pitch in that type of environment uh you know you talk to a lot of pitchers who say you know you're worried that anytime you you see a fly ball go over your head there's a chance it could get out um you know what does that do for pitching pitchers confidence they're going to be moving to kinston which you know they'll be moving into granger stadium which hasn't been used since 2011 but because it is a minor league stadium that has been used before, we could run the park factors for that. Uh, it's much more pitching friendly. It's got a run factor of 0.9. It's got a home run factor of 0.85. Uh, so that's still below average. So that's that's going to be crazy if you were a guy, you know, a Rangers prospect pitching at high desert in 2016 going to Kinston in 2017. Um, but it is at least much more neutral. You know, it, it might be more pitching friendly, but it's certainly more neutral. Uh, and that could have... I know the the Rangers will be happy to see that. That'll make you know their pitchers more confident that they can pitch and not worried about the ballpark affecting things that won't affect you know their hitting prospects, um, you know approaches. It you know as much as you want to tell kids or you know not kids but the younger players, hey, it's easy to hit a home run here. I really need you to try not to do that. I want you to make solid contact. You know they're going to want to get it up in the wind and, and see how far the ball can travel. So taking that out of the equation should help Rangers prospects going forward. Um, a lot more to talk about with this, but that's what I just kind of want to touch on now is that it's going to be really interesting to see what's going to happen to Rangers prospects who are no longer you know having to play in such an extreme environment in high desert, uh, you know, and, and go into a much more neutral place in Kinston. Kinston, North Carolina, will be the home for one of those clubs. Fayetteville looks as if it will eventually be the home for the second of those clubs. Looks as if the Houston Astros will be the parent club of that team. The Texas Rangers will be the parent club of the team that's moving into Kinston. There's actually already a uh, a site set up at MILB.com, uh, KinstonBaseball.com, as some of the details on this new club. But, yeah, if you're looking for the nitty-gritty on what it could mean on the field, Sam's story is outstanding. It's on the site right now, uh, the tool shed column, for what this could mean for Rangers prospects as they take the field at historic Ranger Stadium in Kinston, North Carolina, coming up for the 2017 season. Again, all kinds of conversation coming up on this show today about realignment, what it will mean for Kinston, what it could mean for Fayetteville, uh, and what it does mean in very concrete terms for guys like Dan Bespris and and the, the people that he works with in the front office in Bakersfield, also in High Desert. A ton more about that coming up on the show today. Um, but, you know, I think we're all well served to keep in mind. This is really exciting for Kinston. Really exciting for Fayetteville. Uh, I used to work in the Carolina league, love Granger stadium, love that little town in Kinston, North Carolina. It's a great place. It's a very classically minor league market, but on the flip side of that, a, a cornerstone team in the California League, the Bakersfield Blaze, which has been in that league since 1941 in various incarnations, is going to be gone. The High Desert Mavericks are going to be gone. Um, you know, that's a lot of summer nights without ball games. It's a, a lot of people in those front offices who are going to be looking for new stuff to do in 2017. So be excited for uh, the new markets, the new teams, the new fans, but also take a minute to, you know, recognize that this is tough on a lot of people as well. We certainly don't take that lightly. Um, the contraction in California, expansion of the Carolina League, and minor league baseball uh, continues on with uh, a new chapter for 2017 yeah no thank you for pointing that out i mean that's that's the thing is that you want to take the story and run with it so quickly and just say what does this all mean what are we going to be talking about next april what's and you know you, you try to get into that and you want to acknowledge that as well but um there are real you know people involved here who are losing jobs don't quite know 
uh, you know, what is next? What's beyond the horizon? What's beyond the last regular season game of the year or potentially the last playoff game of the year? Um, I think Dan, you know, we already talked to him, so I can tease it out a little bit. Dan gets into that of just, you know, some people might be moving to to new gigs within, you know, the ownership group at Bakersfield, but um, you know, a lot of people are are going to be searching for new jobs, and that's that's kind of tough. So you just have to band together. Uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of perspectives here, and we don't want to leave any out. So you know, to those losing, you know, opportunities in high desert and Bakersfield, we're certainly thinking of you at this time, and uh, you know, hoping all the best from here on out. Uh, you know, the people in those organizations did a, a really good job of keeping teams together that, you know, at times were tough to keep together. Uh, and the fact that they lasted this long is a, is a testament to those folks as well. Strike two this week, Sam. We will uh, we'll take it back on the field with the Los Angeles Dodgers and their number two prospect, Jose DeLeon, who has been nothing short of ridiculous over his last couple of times out. Last two starts for Jose DeLeon, seven innings pitched in each, seven combined hits, two runs, 20 strikeouts, zero walks. Um, what's gotten into Jose De Leon? We've talked about him uh, in pretty large stretches this season. We talked about him most notably a couple of weeks ago as to being maybe one of those guys who comes up and impacts a major league pennant race because I think that's very much a distinct possibility for him, but he has been so good his last couple of times out. Yeah, and, and the fact that he's been so good at this time is really interesting to me just because you know we when you talk about the Dodgers, they are certainly surging right now in the NL West, but they uh, you know, they have some pitching issues in that they they're really struggling to keep guys healthy. Uh, you know, when I wrote this this tool shed on them last week, uh, they had six guys on the DL who were starting pitchers and Rich Hill, Clayton Kershaw, Brandon McCarthy, Bud Norris, uh, you and Alex Wood. And then they add another. I think Brett Anderson is now on the DL. Uh, um, Rich Hill's come off the DL, but then Scott Casimir has an issue. I mean, they, they have so many problems in terms of starting pitching, and DeLeon's doing this at a time when, you know, he said himself, like, every start I make, feel you know, I want it to be an audition. I want it to be sh- to show the big club that I'm ready for the majors. Um, you know, I talked to him last week after a start, and he said Andrew Friedman, you know, Dodgers president of baseball operations, was there to watch him, so it almost literally was an audition. Uh, he had struck out 10 batters over seven innings pitched in that one. And then I know you talked to him uh, this week, I think, when he had only given up the one hit over seven innings while striking out 10 guys. Yeah. Um, you know, when I talked to him, he talked about a little bit of an adjustment in terms of, you know, he was doing a bullpen and the sun was getting in his eyes and he had never had that happen before. So he kind of adjusted his hat, lowered it a little bit just so he could actually focus on uh, the target and what that did is it almost created like a tunnel effect. At least that's what I got from it. Uh, it made him focus on what was in front of him, you know, what the the target he was trying to hit, and it made him just get lower and throw harder and you know line everything up so much better. And then he goes out and has an immaculate inning in the first inning. You know, nine pitches, nine strikes, three three strikeouts, uh, and he's like something's clicked here. And then he mentioned to me that he was trying to do a better job of this deception with the ball you know he would flash the ball behind his back a little bit he actually said behind his butt that was a direct quote which I <laughs> was so cute and hilarious uh but you know he would flash the ball a little bit behind his butt so he, it was easier to follow so that was something he was working on and then reading your story tyler it, it sounded like uh he had achieved that in his last start uh at new orleans um so it sounds like he's making these little adjustments that are just making it so much harder for to follow him at the triple a level uh, add on top of that, he's only thrown 78 and two thirds innings this year. So he's got plenty left in the tank. He's, he had some injuries early in the year. Seems to be coming back fully fit from those, uh, has tossed seven innings, you know, three starts in a row. This is really intriguing. You have to think the Dodgers would love to have him at the major league level right now. Uh, he's not on the 40 man. So they had, they would have to make some moves, but you know, down the stretch, they're trying to fend off the giants. You would think De Leon could get at least a couple starts maybe in September when rosters expand. Jose De Leon, really, really good. Um, his, I mean, when you look at his numbers just season long, he has been ridiculous. He's basically had two bad days. Um, one of them especially was against New Orleans back on July 25th. Gave up seven runs on eight hits in an inning and a third. And his last start, the start after which I talked to him, was against New Orleans. And he said, I knew last time I came out against these guys, they killed me. And I wanted to make sure that I showed them that I had adjusted to that. But yeah, similarly, the discussion of 
really what he continued to hit on was aggressiveness. He wanted to make sure that he was aggressive going to the plate. He discovered in those bullpens, and again, like he told Sam, it was after Andrew Friedman was in attendance for one of his starts, he discovered how well he was hiding the ball in his bullpen sessions when he was kind of taking it, getting a sign, and going with an aggressive delivery. It was really interesting, and that's one of the things. I've really, for a long time, wanted to talk to Jose De Leon because he's so open in his interviews and discusses so clearly what he feels like is contributing to his success. And that was the first time I think I'd ever actually gotten a chance to interview him. And it was fascinating hearing him be so frank and upfront about, no, I discovered this about how I can do this. And that led to this part of my success. He's one of those really easy guys to cheer for. And uh, big congratulations to him on a, a solid role. Oklahoma city fighting for a postseason spot. And also Los Angeles Dodgers doing the same. So don't be surprised if you hear that name in the major league level coming up very, very soon. Uh, strike three this week, Sam, we're already getting to end of season and all-star lists that are rolling out throughout the minor leagues, which is crazy that we're this close. We're like 10 days away from the close of the minor league regular season. Um, give me some of your uh, your initial takes on these. Yeah, so the ones that kind of popped out to me uh, would have been surprises, I guess, the beginning of the year, but aren't so much now. Now it just feels matter-of-fact. Uh, and that's in the Midwest League and the Appy League. Um, I think California came out today and a couple more will come out as the week progresses. So by the time you've heard this, uh, check the site, see who else has been named an end of season all-star. But starting in the Midwest league, Eloy Jimenez, uh, you know, began the year as the number 10 prospect in the Cubs system. Um, You know, was a guy who was, was signed out of the Dominican Republic a couple of years ago, uh, had hit 284 with a 746 OPS last year in short season ball at Eugene. Uh, you know, a nice prospect, but not anybody you would expect to tear the world apart. Then this year comes in at Class A South Bend, making his full season debut. He's now the Midwest League, not only MVP, but also prospect of the year. Easily a top 100 prospect, easily a top 50 prospect. You know, got invited to the Midwest League All-Star game where he was the top star there. Uh, could, certainly had a case for MVP at the Futures game in San Diego, despite being a guy who had only played at Class A ball. Uh, hit a home run there. I think he went two for three with four RBIs. Uh, so r- as of right now, you know, season's not over, but he's hitting 335 with 13 homers, three triples, 38 doubles, and a 911 OPS. Um, you know, we talked before, this guy seems like a breakout of the prospect of the year candidate, uh, gets rewarded in the Midwest League. Kind of cool to see, you know, how he's built himself through this year. Uh, I-, I know his manager in South Bend has talked about, you know, you could see the confidence building when he would start to get the little awards, you know, the, the invite to the All-Star game, then the invite to the Futures game, and how he just took those opportunities and ran with them. So what is going to be the next step from here? You know, now he's a league MVP. Now he's a league top prospect. Um, you know, what does that mean for him going forward? Is he as confident as he's ever been, or, or is he going to sit on his laurels? Hopefully, you know, it, it, that won't be the case, but that's kind of interesting. Uh, and I'll, I'll move to, over to the Appy League. Uh, Alex Kirilov, you know, Twins first round prospect this year. Uh, he was named the the top player in the Appy League this year. As of Wednesday, he's hitting 320 with an 802 OPS, six homers, nine doubles, and 29 RBIs in 50 games for Elizabethan. Uh, you know, th- this was a guy when the Twins took him in the first round. I, I remember doing the write up, and it just he's he's not a guy that screams. Here's my loud tool. Here's what I do really really well, better than anybody else. But all five of his tools grayed out as average to slightly above average. I mean, this is a guy, you know, he's going to play you a solid outfield. He's got some decent speed, not, you know, 20 stolen bases, not that kind of thing. But he's not going to be a base running asset or a, a, a problem on the base paths, I should say. Uh, but he's going to hit well. He's going to hit for a little bit of power, as we've seen this year. Again, 320 average, six homers. So, you know, when you... When you put all those packages of tools together, that's what you get is this type of season that he's put together in rookie level ball. Now we have to see what's going to happen to him next year, you know, potentially looking at starting uh, at the class A level, you know, getting a full season in him. How is he going to be able to handle that? How is he going to handle a little bit more advanced hit pitching? Um, but, you know, between Jimenez and Kirilov, I, I, I definitely leave 2016 um, more impressed with them than I was at the beginning of the year. And that was even before they got these awards. 
So those are coming out all across the minor leagues in the uh, the upcoming couple of weeks as we steam ahead toward the minor league postseason, which starts just after Labor Day all across this great land of ours. And uh, one of the teams that could be headed there is a team who will be playing on borrowed time if it gets to that stage, uh, but could be a very, very cool story. The Bakersfield Blaze, who have been front and center in the news spinning carousel of, uh, of minor league baseball as of this week, the Bakersfield Blaze. Along with the High Desert Mavericks, will cease operations at the conclusion of the 2016 season, but could well be headed to the postseason, and that could provide uh, a little bit more of uh, fuel to the the fire, which is a terrible pun, obviously, given that the team is named the Blaze. But this uh, this finish to 2016 could be really cool. High Desert's already headed to the playoffs. We'll see if Bakersfield will join them. But the big conversation coming up with Dan Bespris of the Bakersfield Blaze discusses the, uh, the close of this franchise for 2017 and beyond, what it means for him, what it means for the front office, what it means for Bakersfield and, and baseball in that city. And uh, we kind of get the, the perspective from the other side of this whole conversation of contraction and expansion in two Class A advanced leagues in the California and Carolina League and minor league baseball. And Dan Bespris joins the show coming up to talk about all that and more next. And for this week's conversation, the Show Before the Show podcast heads to Bakersfield, California, which is uh, on its way out as a minor league market as of right now. And we welcome in Dan Bespris, who is a radio voice, longtime radio voice of the Bakersfield Blaze, currently the Class A advanced affiliate of the Seattle Mariners. And Dan, obviously not an easy week, uh, not an easy stretch for you guys, but welcome and thanks a ton for joining us. What is the current state in the front office? I mean, uh, not a, a real easy few days, I would imagine, to come to work. But at the same time, you know, you guys are kind of all going through this together. Together, and I would imagine there's a little bit of comfort in that. What's it been like for the last few days? Yeah, I mean, uh, you, you sort of answered your own question with that one. It was it, it's spot on. It's been uh, an incredibly difficult week. And and hello, by the way, to everyone. Uh, <laughs> uh, <I laughs> by the way, Dan is the best sounding guest we've ever had. He's using the radio broadcast equipment. Sounds phenomenal. It's like he's sitting next to us. I like it. Well, uh, well, maybe I am sitting next to you. Have it could you, be. Have you, over, have you each checked <laughs> over your right shoulders? Uh, no, I mean, it's, this is something where having been here for six years now, which in, in minor league ball is kind of an eternity. Um, I think I've been a part of four different departure rumors just, just in six years. So at some point you become a little bit numb to the idea that it will actually happen someday. I mean, I figured it would happen 2035 or something like that. And I'd be long gone, whether that's elsewhere or dead. Uh, and, and, and at that point, you, know, you pass along all the knowledge and everything that we put together here. But it, it really happened. I mean, it, it happened. Uh, we on staff had about uh, a very short warning before the official press release came out. But we did know beforehand. Uh, and, and it stings. I mean, it, it cuts really deep. And, and for me personally, uh, I mean, my, my time in Bakersfield probably was not going to be that much longer, whether it was this year or next or a couple of years down the line. Uh, so it's not necessarily the fact that I'm not going to have something to do in Bakersfield le- next season. For me, it's much more about all the time that we've all here put into this stadium to kind of keep it together, to, to tie it up with, with string and duct tape and to do our best 2,000 hours, whatever it is over the season, to, to make it fun and to make it interesting. And I, I just really hope that everybody, not only here locally, but across the nation, kind of remembers the, the staff that held it together as long as we did. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, they had two decades to try to figure out how to, how to get this place figured out, and, and it didn't happen. So, you know, you knew this day would come eventually. You just hoped that it wouldn't be immediate. And uh, and that's where we sit right now. A, a lot of sad faces and a lot of kind of trying to put on a good show, our last homestand. But um, really nothing else you can do right now but, but just try to make the last few home games memorable. And, and you mentioned a little bit of the community and, you know, Bakersfield itself as a city, as, as a region. I mean, what has the reaction been, you know, outside the stadium, outside the front office to all of this? Um, you know, what what kind of words are you guys getting from people in the community or, you know, like I said, outside the organization? The response has actually been fantastic in terms at least of our personal pride for those of us on the front office staff, because it's been almost unilaterally 
wow, you guys, you know, you really worked your tails off. We saw the front office busting their humps in a kind of an unwinnable situation at times. Um, but there's also frustration with whether it's other people kind of calling each other out in town. Hey, why didn't you go to more ball games or calling out the county for not building something new that it's a lot of kind of initial finger pointing, I think, where that to some degree is just human nature. You want to try to blame somebody when something bad happens. But uh, again, I, it, it, it's there's blame to go around it, pretty much anywhere you point a finger Wherever you're pointing, there's probably some measure of guilt that you could find in that direction. And to me, that's not even the most important part right now. But uh, the people of the town have been awesome. They've uh, they've supported us in a big way uh, on on social media so far. And I know when the news broke, I got text messages from former colleagues, former employees of other teams in the California League, season ticket holders. And almost everybody that I'd met in my time out here has tried to contact me in some way to kind of say, hey, we're thinking about you. We know this is a hard time. You guys did everything you could, uh, and and we'll miss you. And really, maybe one out of about two or 300 responses was good riddance to bad rubbish. And frankly, if we can keep that to a, a 1% or 2% or less, then I think we did a pretty good job here the last couple of years, and, and we're awfully proud of that. Yeah, I think if you can keep any internet response to uh, 99% positive, that's, <laughs> you that's have a, broken the internet. That's a good uh, success rate. Yeah. <laughs> well, you uh, know, they, they it's 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 that old phenomenon where people don't realize what they had until it's gone, uh, and the the song is is way too apt. So I don't even want to bring it up, but I think that's what's happening is that these people realize they had something special, and now it's it's going away, and there's nothing that any of us can do about it. Um, the the decision was made final by minor league baseball and uh, and now they're upset and and they're they're mad that maybe they didn't take a, a better advantage of it but they are thankful for what they got from the front office from the players and uh, and and that's kind of uh, that's heartwarming to know that at the at the root of all of that it is kind of a love for baseball so that that part has been pretty cool and uh, one thing I wanted to touch on you mentioned you know kind of keeping the organization together with, you know, paper clips, duct tape, whatever. Um, Sam Lynn Ballpark in particular, you know, a, a, an historic park goes back to 1941. Uh, you know, what what is the state of that park? What have you guys had to do with that that structure? You know, just as a place that, uh, that stood that long, what have you guys had to do to keep it going this long? And, um, you know, where does it, what is the next step for that ballpark? Yeah, uh, you know... I don't want to overstep my bounds and say that this is the hardest ballpark in the world to work at, but I got to believe we're top 10. Uh, you know, this is, this is an old facility where uh, it hasn't really had a ton of things done to it to make it an easier place to work. As, a, as just kind of a quick example that you can extrapolate to other parts, other facets of a day at the office, we still use uh, an internet and phone provider uh, known as TW Telecom, which I think was a Time Warner uh, communications branch that basically doesn't exist anymore outside of some very rare scenarios. Um, AT&T does not reach our stadium. Local Bright House Cable does not reach our stadium. We're, we're set in an area where uh, they would have had to dig a subterranean hole about a quarter of a mile from the nearest branch point. So we're, we've been operating... You know, the whole front office and the clubhouse on a T1 line, which uh, I, I know I'm sort of adjusting my bifocals as I say that. But uh, <laughs> as as a point of reference, that was the big thing in 2001. That's 15 years ago now. And that's still what we're using out here. So that's not, you know, to, to poke fun at the stadium. That's just to kind of point out that everything here is 15 years harder than it should be, uh, and it and it's it's mind-bogglingly frustrating at times. But at the end of it, I I don't know if I can really express adequately that that sense of pride and that sense of relief when you actually make it work when you when you build yeah. this thing out of the duct tape that we were talking about in the paper clips and it and it works and it was so hard and nobody thought that it would. And then you made it work anyway. And that, that to me, is a microcosm of Sam Lynn Ballpark. Outside of all the other things, 
Everything, by the way, that anybody listening has heard is probably true, and it's just amazing. I, I just I hope anybody that wants to can can still take this week to come out and see the place. Everybody's favorite anecdote about Sam Lynn, of course, is that the the Blaze start uh, home games a lot of time during the summer at 745 at night because the architects of Sam Lynn Ballpark back in the 40s thought that placing a ballpark that faced directly west would not be a bad idea. And I guess when you weren't playing that many <laughs> night games, exactly. it's really not that troublesome. Yeah, you know, every one of the weird stories out here has some goofy explanation behind it. Uh, with the possible exception of the fact that the dugouts only hold about eight people, I still can't figure out. I still can't figure out why they did that. But uh, you know, we had the old uh, fairgrounds out here, and the the stands were already set up, and so they just sort of plopped a ballpark into it. And they didn't, and you can't rotate it 180 degrees. That's something that people have talked about. You'd actually have to physically move it farther away from the Kern River, or seats would not be on a firm enough ground. So. You know, they built it in the 40s. It, they played day games, and as they started to go to night games, they either started before or well after sunset. And only recently has it become a much bigger issue where, you know, everybody has to be home promptly at 9.45 and then in bed by 10. And, yeah, in the summertime, most people only get to see about five and a half innings of Blaze baseball. Sam Lynn Ballpark uh, is one of the longest tenured facilities in minor league baseball and is uh, a facility that we'll be saying goodbye to as a California league ballpark in the Cal League moving to eight teams, which is something that uh, it has not been in its incarnation since the late 1970s. But what I think runs the risk of being lost in all this a lot of the time is the impact that it has on people like Dan and the front office members uh, around him and around the front office of the High Desert Mavericks because that's the, those are the people that it affects most. It'll affect the fans, but even players, coaches, they'll move on. They'll play in Kinston. They'll play in Fayetteville, wherever it is. But for front office staff members, when you're there at 8 o'clock in the morning every day and you leave at midnight and you do that for eight days straight in an eight-game homestand, and as Dan said, you're putting things together with spit and bubble gum and duct tape and paper clips and you're making it all work those are the people whose blood sweat and tears get poured into something like this and it i would imagine feels like it all has gone for naught in a lot of cases but that's in no way the case i mean we know the enjoyment that minor league baseball brings to millions tens of millions of people across the country year after year and bakersfield which i didn't know until this week is the ninth largest city in california so the amount yep. of people who have filed into that ballpark over the last eight decades is incredible, but for the front office staff, at least from my vantage point, that's who this comes down to. And what has that been like for you guys as, you know, kind of a grieving family at this stage, uh, to share that amongst each other? And in minor league baseball, shared suffering is your existence. Pulling the tarp, <laughs> cleaning up the concourses, all that stuff is your existence. But this takes that to an entirely different level. Yeah, this uh, that shared suffering remark is is uh, so well put. I, I I don't know that I could really phrase it better myself. I I've spent the last couple of days really just thinking about all the people on the front office that have come through here in my six seasons with the baseball team, and just whether it's full time staffers or interns or whatever. And and heck, you know, I think the person that that's most impacted by this is our official scorer, Tim Wheeler, who everybody in the California League knows, and I'm betting a lot of folks back at BAM are well aware of Tim. Uh, he's been out here for over two straight decades scoring games at Sam Lynn Ballpark. I mean, he's, he's as great a fixture here as anybody, uh, including our program salesman, Froggy, who's also kind of a national treasure. Uh, that <laughs> a lot of people know about Froggy, too. Uh, but, yeah, I mean... That is the hard part. Uh, I, I can't get into, unfortunately, too much of the details on kind of how everything's wrapping up. But um, the team is likely changing hands. Uh, so everybody on the front office staff will indeed be looking for uh, other things to do. We're fortunate enough out here to be under the ownership umbrella group of uh, the Elmore Sports Group. So there may be some opportunities for hopefully at least some of our staffers to, to find other positions within that group. Uh, but for those of us who have sort of a, uh, to take a line out of taken, I guess, a more specific set of skills uh, and, and want to do something like, for me, broadcasting, uh, spots are few and far between. So it is, uh, it, it is a tough time indeed. We're, we're just, 
I, I don't know. I think the best way to describe this week has been just kind of putting our heads down, and it might really sink in after our last regular season home game on Sunday the 28th when the team goes out on the road and everybody realizes there ain't a whole lot left to do at that point besides fire sale out here. It's time to it's time to get rid of some stuff and uh and then you kind of stare down the barrel at the ending and and it hits you. I'll admit guys that uh, when I heard this news, it made me way way more upset than I thought it would and I have already cried about it. I I didn't know that would happen and it did and I think uh like you said shared suffering just so many hours poured into this place and I I just again I just pray that it doesn't disappear that that people will here locally in particular, remember everything that happened at this ballpark for 75 years and appreciate it. And, and maybe someday Bakersfield will, will kind of get its act together and, and get a ballpark and get baseball back. And there seems to be a, at least one rallying point here in the, this last two weeks of the regular season anyways. Uh, Blades currently are three games ahead for the second half Darn total, uh, in Darn the California right. League North Division, uh, three games ahead of Visalia. Uh, how much is that a rallying point? You know, the the chance to have more baseball. Is there any kind of rallying point in the community to try to get a, out to these last few regular season games? Uh, what about the team? I mean, you know, they're all Mariners prospects. They're they're going to go somewhere else. But how much are they tied into that to get one final playoff push for the for the team for the city of Baker? Well, I think from a city standpoint, uh, you're definitely seeing people come out that that haven't been out in a while. Um, we uh, we we posted the article that that you guys put together at MILB uh, on the realignment on our Facebook page, the Blaze page, and I think it might be the most well-trafficked story that we have ever posted on our Facebook page. So that I think is a good indicator that it's it's been a wake-up call. Uh, and I I don't know how much the people here locally are concerned about a playoff run. I think they are uh, again thinking a little more short-term, and certainly. As we present it to them, we are presenting it as this is the last regular season homestand, and you really ought to come out now because just because of kind of flip flopping and how the the last few weeks of the season might turn out, we don't know if our playoff game is going to be happening at all, and we don't know if it's going to be happening on Wednesday or Thursday and Friday potentially of next week. Uh, so it's easier, I think, to just kind of remind people, hey, this is really your last chance where we know what day the games are happening. We know what promotions are coming up. So, you know, don't wait another week. Haven't we been down this road for 22 years? Stop waiting. Just come to a game because you're really going to miss it. Uh, on the team side, I've actually seen more rallying than I expected. And that's not to, to take anything away from the guys. I just I didn't know that they would end up caring as much about the end of a ballpark where a lot of them have only been for a couple of months. Some of them maybe for a year and change. But I do think that actually it comes back to our manager, Eddie Menchaca, who also managed some of these players, in fact, in high desert when the Mariners were an affiliate out there two years ago. So he's been at both stadiums that are leaving the California League, and a couple of the players have as well. And I think having that almost as like planting the seed on the inside, guys able to say, hey, this is, this is history, let's be a part of it, they're, they're playing their tails off, and it seems like every single game is decided in the last two innings. So... You know, at the very least, we're certainly in for some interesting baseball, and uh, I-, I would love to see a Bakersfield High Desert Finals where at least somebody gets to pack up all their stuff and put a trophy in the bag. That is still out there and a possibility for not just the Bakersfield Blaze, but the High Desert Mavericks as well. Um, one thing that that really stuck out to me this week on the day that this news was announced, Blaze pitcher Tyler Pike tweeted a picture with the hashtag Blaze win of the front of the Bakersfield home dugout and some cups had been pushed into the chain link that said we is Blaze. Um, and I thought that was really cool and really poignant because like you said, for a lot of these guys, you move on, you play in a different city every year, but to see the way they've seemingly embraced this and now to have that to play for over these last couple of weeks is really, really cool. Yeah, I, I do think that they appreciate the, the, the sort of the impact that this really – I mean, this is, this is really massive, and I hope that everybody else gathers that as well. This is a ballpark that has been holding baseball since 1941. It was a founding member of the California League, and I – for that reason, I don't know that anybody really expected baseball would ever truly leave Bakersfield. And 
I hate to signal uh, to single out, excuse me, Tyler Pike, but he is one of those guys that has pitched in both High Desert and in Bakersfield. So I think he's a good example of someone who who gets it, who sees that this is a big deal, and 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 that the he's been able to play in a couple of stadiums that have held baseball for twenty five years or seventy five years or whatever it is, and there there's something there's something that could be. Obviously, you know, you have to get to that point, but it could be pretty amazing to go out with a championship to make the last year at one of these places one of the most significant in its history. And I don't think it's lost on those guys. And and that's been pretty cool for us here on on kind of the media side with the front office, because we've been able to channel that into how we present the team locally as well. So that's been pretty neat. The other seven teams in the 1941 California League were the Anaheim Aces, the Fresno Cardinals, the Merced Bears, the Riverside Reds, the San Bernardino Stars, the Santa Barbara Saints, and the Stockton Flyers. They joined the Bakersfield Badgers, which was an awesome name, uh, to form the California League in 1941. It was a Class C league at that stage. And 75 years later, we're going to say goodbye to the Bakersfield Blaze. Uh, But we won't say goodbye to our good friend, Dan Besbris, who is on Twitter, by the way, you can find Dan there. His last name is B-E-S-B-R-I-S. Uh, the Bakersfield Blaze at Baco Blaze, one of the best Twitter feeds also in minor league baseball, which has gotten very snarky over the last few days about the Mets and the Dodgers. And I like this attitude that uh, the uh, account's taken on. It's been I great. I got to I got to give a tip of the cap to uh, to Dave Gascon, our media relations guy, who's uh, <laughs> who's taken our Twitter to a kind of a dark place over the last couple of weeks. Uh, this, the story behind the Mets, I will reveal it now, is that our, okay, our team's general manager, Mike Candela, is a huge, I mean diehard, I mean you're talking about calf tattoo Mets fan. Okay. He happened to be sitting right next to Dave in the press box while he was doing one of his broadcasts, and he thought, well, you know what, the heck with it. I'm just going to clobber the Mets on this broadcast because my general manager is sitting right next to me. And all he can really do is shake his head and smirk because he doesn't want to jump on the broadcast. And then he decided to take it to Twitter, too. And, and that's kind of how we have. We have no actual bone to pick with the New York Mets. In fact, uh, the, you heard the love, it here first. Yeah, that's I mean, that's the story. And uh, we tried to keep it under wraps for a little while because we figured the confusion may have been driving the story. Why on earth? Why on earth is this team in Bakersfield, California, blasting the New York Mets? And it's just to try to mess with our general manager. So we, we have no problem with the Mets. Uh, but, you know, we figure we are in kind of a uh, nothing-to-lose situation here now. So if if you guys mess with the Baco Blaze on Twitter, <laughs> we're not going to hold back anymore. Go for it, because it's very entertaining. Go for it. Oh, yeah, Dave, Dave's very good at, at <laughs> Twitter trolling from the Baco Blaze account. We went after the, I think we went after the Rawhide a couple nights back. Uh, he may have gone after the San Francisco Giants because yeah, we were playing San Jose that. last night. It's, it's, been, it's been pretty hilarious. I've, been, I've found myself on air looking at our Twitter feed and just laughing mid-batter. Uh, <laughs> Dave, Dave's a wizard, man. I got I to gotta give him uh, a huge high five for his work on that one. Dan Besbris is on Twitter. He is at Dan B-E-S-B-R-I-S. You can listen to broadcasts for the final Bakersfield Blaze homestand uh, and this final push toward the postseason at MILB.com, and you can catch Dan there as well. Dan, we can't thank you enough. Uh, obviously not an easy an easy time to, to hop on and grab a few minutes with us, and we know you got to run for a, a meeting as they kind of brief you guys on what's going on with the franchise. But we're all thinking about you and all pulling for the Blaze down this final stretch and the Mavericks as well. And uh, thanks again for everything, and I'm sure we'll be talking again soon yeah thank you so much gentlemen you know if you ever want to talk to a uh, to an upcoming trophy husband i will happily be your guy Well, as has been a common theme of the show today, we're going to continue discussing realignment in the California and Carolina leagues as we bring in our good pal Benjamin Hill, who joins the show, uh, to talk about things from kind of the business perspective of this move. This is a very rare move in minor league baseball uh, for a couple of teams to be contracted from one league added to another. Um, and, Ben, just kind of give us the, the breakdown from your perspective of this. I mean, what this ultimately comes down to is business decisions in the California league and the Carolina league. There are ballpark situations that were deemed unten- and untenable in California. 
California. There is a vacant ballpark in the Carolina League in Granger Stadium that is a fantastic facility given its age especially um, and, a, and a market as it appears in Fayetteville. It looks like it could be a fertile ground for the Carolina League. Just kind of give us the synopsis of what this means from the business side. Yeah, there's a lot of factors at play here and um, you know, in the you know, decade that I've been covering minor league baseball in some capacity, you know, never had a story um, probably this momentous in terms of uh, the, the parties involved and, you know, two teams ceasing operations and two more being added. Uh, there's a lot to break down. I think first and foremost, what this comes down to is the state of California and how they have not been able to get the whole state has no access to public funds um, for minor league baseball facilities and um, you know projects of that nature and through the years we've seen that scuttle a lot of um, you know potential ballparks uh, there was the the whole when Padres ownership wanted to bring their AAA club to Escondido and then they played in Tucson temporarily and that team eventually finally became El Paso but uh, you know there was no ballpark in Escondido because of funding issues obviously Bakersfield playing in a facility that was built in the 40s uh, there have been so many plans to get them into a new uh, stadium because Bakerfield as a market would be one of the strongest markets in minor league baseball. It's not a issue of you know these communities not you know not being able to support a team based on the demographics of the community. A lot of it comes down to stadiums, and um, I think that's really where this all begins. Is that the California League tried for years in various uh, capacities to to get new stadiums and uh, could not, and you had Bakersfield playing in Sam Lim, which is, by the way, one of my favorite places that I've ever visited, Um, you know, a park that goes back to the 40s that has a dedicated front office staff that has the kind of uh, charm and eccentricity and just uh, general uh, good vibes that that I love on the road trips. But from if you're going to evaluate it from a player development standpoint and from the crowds they were drawing based uh, in comparison to the size of the market, it was clearly an untenable situation. So Bakersfield has been kind of on the proverbial chopping block for years. Uh, and High Desert, too, um, not for as long a time, but, uh, you know, when Dave Heller and Main Street Baseball ownership, you know, got in a very public spat prior to this season in which there was a disagreement about their lease agreement with the city, which was set in stone. But the city said we you know, prefer not to follow these terms and, uh, you know, attempted to even lock them out, uh, lock the team out before the start of the season. So when you have public acrimony there and High Desert, um, you know, they play in Ad- Adelanto uh, specifically. You know, that was not a very good ballpark situation either, even in the best of circumstances. And then when you have um, that level of discord surrounding it, it kind of became like we cannot have Bakersfield and uh, and High Desert, you know, in this league for in perpetuity because these are not situations that really meet the requirements of minor league baseball from a variety of factors. Um, so I think the real need was in – California to need new facilities, and because that wasn't happening, then you have simultaneously, <coughs> excuse me, uh, Carolina and T- and Mars in the Carolina League, which are much more amenable and uh, have more resources to build those facilities, and uh, in the form of the Rangers moving to Kinston and likely the Astros moving to Fayetteville, that's not set in stone. You also have Texas teams that would rather be closer to the east than on the west, so it works for them, and um, you know the Carolina throughout the North and South Carolina, it's just a great place for baseball and a lot of great environments. And Kinston is uh, Granger Stadium, another place that has a lot of history. And so the Rangers high affiliate can move right in and uh, still to be determined uh, where the second team's going to be. But as I said, uh, we're looking at Fayetteville, who last hosted baseball in the form of the Cape Fear Crocs. And if you remember Cape our team, Fear Crocs. Song, uh, Cape episode, Fear Crocs. Yeah. Cape Fear Crocs, a classic theme song, and uh, J.P. Riddle Stadium is where that team played, and that's currently the home of the Swamp Dogs, a collegiate woodbat team. And you, you mentioned Kinston in there. Uh, you said you visited Kinston in the past back when you know, there was a team there. What was the minor league experience like? How did Granger Stadium kind of work as a, as a stadium then, and what do you kind of anticipate for this move when the Raiders do move in? that that market well they haven't had affiliated baseball since 2011 and that was when i visited the kinston indians in the carolina league and that club after the 2011 season moved to zebulon and became the mudcats while the pre-existing carolina mudcats who were then double a moved to pensacola i hope everyone's yeah, that was taking, a very confusing thing <laughs> everybody's got their maps their strings yeah. Yeah. Move them around like, a, a like on risk you have to move your little pieces places for the, to dominate the world of minor league baseball 
Yeah, exactly. And at first, I just thought you said like it's like it's a like brisk. a brisk. I was like, I don't really see the, <laughs> don't don't really see. Uh, except two teams did get cut in this yeah. whole scenario. Anyway, um, we um, when I was in Kinston at Granger, yeah, this is a stadium built in 1949 and in a market that only had, of, of course, a drawing from surrounding communities. But the town of Kinston has less than 22,000 people in it, so. Um, it's kind of funny that the Rangers are moving across the country to get to a stadium in a very small market that was built in 1949, but it's in good shape. Um, you know, it's closer uh, geographically for the Rangers long-term needs. I've heard no talk about, you know, long-term building a stadium to replace Granger. You know, maybe that'll be dealt with down the line, but it's in good shape. It has a lot of history. And from a fan perspective, I think you have to be happy that Kinston is back as much as it's sad to lose Bakersfield and high desert. You have to be happy. Kinston is back a place that has a lot of history. Um, you know, in addition to, you know, Carolina league baseball through the decades, they hosted Negro league teams in the forties and fifties. I met some of their alumni when I was there in 2011. Um, and the kind of ballpark, you know, they just don't build them like that anymore. And Tyler, you know, uh, you spent ample time in Kinston and, uh, I believe called one of the longest games in minor league baseball history there. So um, you know, it's a place with a lot of memories and a lot of history, and uh, and I'm happy to see it back for that reason. I mean, it really is a homecoming for the Carolina League, and it's a, a city and a ballpark and a franchise that have had a lot of history in the league, and the league has had a, a lot of history in Kinston. Um, but it also brings into the equation where the other piece comes into play in the Carolina League because as of right now, the suggestions are – Fayetteville, North Carolina, will be the home for the other franchise that has been contracted from the California League. And a new ballpark will be built there to begin play in 2019 with the Houston Astros being the parent club of that team. Now, we don't know any of that for sure. None of that has been officially announced. That's all as of this stage, uh, just kind of some speculation that has not been confirmed. But even if that is the case, let's say all of those dominoes do fall together, that leaves at least 2017 and 2018 where we don't know where this Fayetteville franchise will be playing. There's been some discussion. Maybe they'll play at Granger Stadium, which, again, is a great facility for a long time, was named the best field in the Carolina League. Uh, so, I mean, the, the drainage is good. The playing service is good. But it's also, a you know, an 80-year-old facility, basically, at this stage, 70 years old. Can it handle 140 games over the course of uh, 150 days in the summer? So there are still a lot of question marks surrounding all this. All we know is that two teams will be playing in the Carolina League that weren't there in 2016, one of those will be in Kinston. We know that for certain. Yeah, and Fayetteville is a strong front runner right. for the other. And uh, the Astros are very much on the record as saying, you know, this is something we're working toward. It's not a back room behind the right. scenes thing. Right. Uh, the Astros want to bring a team to Fayetteville. I talked to Astros president Reed Ryan last week, and, you know, he said, absolutely, this is what we're trying to do. This, you know, quote, checks off a boxes for us in terms of uh, uh, where it's, you know, where it's situated in, in the national uh, landscape as regards their farm system, um, in terms of having a new facility, in terms of being close to their uh, new spring training facility or comparatively close. And uh, the Astros are working with the city of Fayetteville. And uh, the city of Fayetteville last week, I believe, approved a memorandum of understanding. And when you're going through the uh, kind of sometimes torturously slow city government process, as it should be slow because you're dealing with a lot of money here, um, a memorandum of understanding is not official approval, but it's kind of like an agreement to move forward. It's kind of like we got engaged, but we're not married yet kind of thing. So um, they've taken major steps to get this far, and uh, Fayetteville's very much the front runner, and the Astros are uh, very much committed to the process of bringing that team to Fayetteville. And everything else, it's kind of like let's take care of that first and then see what happens, and we'll all have plenty more to talk about down the line. Yeah, definitely. I, I want to pivot, and it's not—it's something you wrote this week, but again, it's about something next year. Uh, this week's Pro Watch, you, you talked about how the Salem-Kaiser volcanoes in August of 2017 are going to try to use an eclipse to their advantage in a promotion. How's that going to kind of work and come together? Yeah, this is so cool. Salem-Kaiser, who who play in, in Oregon, Oregon, Oregon. Oregano. Oregon, oregano. <laughs> Salem Kaiser, the Volcanoes, the Class A short season affiliate of the San Francisco Giants. They usually, when I'm writing promo watch or writing about promos or tweeting about promos or dreaming about promos, they're ones that have just taken place or are about to take place. I think this is the first time I've led a column off with something that is taking place literally a year from now. But I learned a lot in writing this, and I really became very excited about this idea. August 21st, 2017, there is going to be 
a solar eclipse, and it's the first coast-to-coast eclipse in the United States since 1918. So it'll be 99 years, that the first time there's been a solar eclipse across the country. And as an eclipse moves across the country, there is the so-called path of totality, which is a roughly 60-mile-wide band in which you know the eclipse will be a total eclipse. That's where you experience it. So you know, eclipse aficionados, of which there are many, you know, the hotel rooms and camping sites and whatever have you are all fully booked, not just a year in advance, but they've been booked for years and already in some cases uh, to get in the path of totality for this eclipse and experience it to the fullest. Salem-Kaiser is in the path of totality, and since the solar eclipse obviously starts on the west and makes its way east, um, you know, it's, it's in the morning, um, a little after 10 a.m., I believe, that the eclipse will occur. Uh, in the Salem-Kaiser area. So the team has announced a morning game, and they haven't set the start time. It'll be somewhere around 9 or 9.30, with a built-in eclipse delay in the game. And all the players on the field, as well as all the fans, they'll get commemorative glasses. They can stare at the sun during this delay and watch you know, near-total darkness come in. And this really surreal communal experience of being in a ball game, stopping it in the middle, or you know, probably be in the second or third inning or so, and uh, experiencing the eclipse, and then probably within 15 or 20 minutes, there will be enough light, you know, as long as there's not some sort of apocalyptic event or something like that. You never know. But usually uh, normalcy will return in about 15 minutes, and uh, then they can get on with the game. And this is the the culmination of what they're calling Eclipse Fit Fest, which is going to be a whole weekend of events. They're having a beer and wine fest, and they'll serve breakfast at the ballpark the day of the eclipse. And uh, I was told they might open up their parking lot for RVs because all the hotel rooms are already, already booked in the area. And just a really cool way to take advantage of a very unique uh, natural phenomenon that's occurring. And I became very interested in the path of totality in, in, in researching this promo. And one, it's the 10th album by Korn. Path of Totality. So Google Path of Totality, and there you go. That's it corn is. with a K for all the kids listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's probably true. Yeah, and that's kids with a K. Kids with a K. One eight seven seven cars for kids. Yeah, and corn. You know, to go on a brief tangent, they were part of a genre of rock that I always despise. Yeah, same. Always, always yeah, despise. But anyway, Path of Totality. Credit to corn, <laughs> and um, you know, for coming up with a great album name, uh, their tenth LP. And the path of totality, as it moves across the country, will also be in some other minor league markets later in the day, including Bowling Green and Nashville and several in South Carolina, such as Columbia and Charleston and Greenville. So I'm trying to tell these teams, I mean, they don't necessarily listen to me, but I'm trying to tell them, if you have a home game on August 21st and you're in the path of totality, do your own Eclipse promotion. I mean, that's awesome, right? That's I think it's really cool. I'm, I'm totally on board with this idea. This is the most excited I've ever been about an eclipse. No, this really is a really cool idea. I'm hoping from the, you know, the baseball nerd standpoint, I'm hoping that at the uh, on the stats side at MLB Advanced Media, I hope that by next year they have put something into the uh, system that allows a delay to be listed in parentheses for eclipse. Because now it can be, you know, delay rain, delay lighting, delay in inclement weather, wet field, whatever. I hope eclipse comes up next year on, you know, game day and the box scores is the reason behind that. I know it's a big pressing yeah, issue. It is. I think that's pretty much the most yeah, important aspect of everything we've talked gotta about make so sure. far. <laughs> Thank you, Tyler, as usual, for always bringing. Always it back got my finger on the button, true. man. Always got my my finger on the eclipse button. Um, ben, another uh, to, to to blow it up <laughs> to to initiate the path of totality. Um, that's really actually it sounds like what they would have deemed like had the independence day attack happened in real life it sounds like what they would have deemed that like when they just blow up cities it was in the whole path of totality from those big green guns i think that's what uh that's what the terminology would have been moving on um mascot mania is currently underway on the site um have you gentlemen been voting you can vote for your favorite mascots in all of minor league baseball it is an election year by the way east region south region midwest region and the west region um i i as we started our call today i logged on to start voting and i've pretty much been doing it the entire time since yeah you know i, I try to keep my preferences uh close to the vest because my official uh 
stance here in the world of MILB is that I love everything equally, and that includes all mascots. But, uh, you know, Danny Wild, Twitterless Danny Wild, as I call him, author of Minoring and Twitter and uh, beloved MILB.com colleague, he wrote the story kind of uh, introducing Mascot Mania and solicited me for a few quotes. So I gave some of my favorites within that quote, including Shelly in Modesto. Um, you know, she is a pistachio and a new, a new addition to um, their nut lineup of uh, mascots. Because uh, they are the Modesto nuts, and when I visited Modesto, Shelley took my notebook and wrote "I love you." Ah, <laughs> and I think I fell in love with her too. And she is very pretty. I feel a little weird that I have feelings now She's for a mascot, mascot, and that totally is um, coloring my uh, my uh, unbiased or allegedly unbiased perspective. And on a broader scale, you know, uh, hey, call me a social justice warrior, but. Why are mascots default male? Yeah, that's true. We need more female mascots. That's a good point. And that's a very good point. I'm casting my vote for Shelly every time she comes up in the randomized mascot uh, matchups. Um, in that article, too, I gave a shout-out to Hornsby, and I said, like Bruce before him, he has the range. And I don't think anyone got that joke, but I'm still proud I can sneak it into an article because Bruce Hornsby, you know, his band was the range. Uh, oh, Nobody? Nope. No. You don't even remember who Bruce Hornsby was? No. See? And yet I get these jokes in for public consumption <laughs> all the time. Um, I did appreciate your uh, total eclipse. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, that was good for the Salem-Kaiser thing, the headline to that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it felt a little <laughs> obvious to me, but, you know, I couldn't um, I will not be as impartial as Ben. My favorite mascot in minor league baseball is the Winston-Salem Dash's Bolt, and Bolt is currently 33rd in the South region, which is just – debilitating to my mood today i love bold man i'm sorry these things affect you on such a uh, deep i considered buying bolt stuffed uh toys for my unborn children back when i worked in the carolina league like five six years ago and they are still unborn so i didn't waste money but i would have had bolt just still sitting around my house waiting for one day should i for some reason find a lady who decides that it's good to have children with me then i would have had bolt but i don't so double sadness so so Tyler's apartment is just a shrine to his perpetually unborn children. It's just nothing but sad, lonely stuffed animals. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Oh, man. Benjamin Hill is on Twitter. He's at Ben's Biz. This has been a packed week of, uh, of news from around the world of the business of minor league baseball. And some cool promos coming up as well. That stuff is up on the site right now, uh, and you can check out the blog all the time, too, bensbiz.mlblogs.com, and uh, go put on that corn album, Ben. We'll, we'll talk to you next week after you're done imbibing the entire corn catalog. Well, I'm not doing the whole catalog, <laughs> but I think Path of Totality, I might check that one out because, you know, I try to be open-minded. I wrote off corn a long time ago. Maybe you like them now. to name an album of uh, Path of Totality, I think they... Uh... I think they might just be the band for Shot. me. At least that album, you know, it, it eclipses all. Thanks, Finn. Finishing up episode, what did we decide this is? 73? Is that what it is? 73 of the Show Before the Show podcast. Again, you can find Dan Bespris on Twitter. He's at Dan, B-E-S-B-R-I-S. The Bakersfield Blaze are at Bako Blaze. Uh, again, one of the most entertaining follows in minor league baseball, and you might only get a couple more weeks. I don't know. Maybe somebody will just take the password, keep the account open, and just tweet satirically. I think that would be very entertaining. That would be great. Just tweet as if the Blaze were still playing. <laughs> And just, like, have, have perpetual three-game series with High Desert. Yeah, exactly. Just, just things play up. Odd Infinitum, as yeah. they say. Um, nobody says that. I just made that. <laughs> People don't say that in conversation. I don't know who I just refer to as as they say. Anyway, Sam and I are going to go united on our MILB TV picks for this week. Now, the reason we're going to give you picks for a series coming up next week is I'm actually going to be leaving the country for a few days. Sam and I are going to record next week's show on Tuesday, but this series starts on Tuesday. Sam, tell all the folks what we're talking about. Yeah, so if you want to get your chance to see the Bakersfield Blaze, you know, you want to see what they're all about. Just You want to see a team that is rallying for a playoff spot. Um, they're actually going to be playing in a MILB TV market at San Jose next Tuesday, so starting August 30th, uh, August 
30th, 31st, and September 1st. So that's Tuesday through Thursday. A three-game set at San Jose. That'll be on MILB.TV. Um, you know, you get a chance to root for a team that's, you know, fighting against the dying of the light. Um, you know, you heard Dan say that this is a team that is actually rallying, you know, that's not just some perceived storyline that we're trying to make up here. He, he can see it in the club. Uh, you can, you can see it for yourself. Um, if you're in Bakersfield yourself, please go out to a game beforehand. Uh, don't take our advice and wait for it to be on Milb TV. Uh, if you have a subscription, great, you know, do both. But, um, you know, if you're in the area, please go see a Blaze game live. And then for the rest of you, go watch them next week. Take on San Jose as they try to push for those Cal League playoffs. So that is on tap. And by the way, San Jose, the only Cal League team on Milb TV. So you can catch uh, it's kind of a rare beast. You can catch some Cal League games on Milb TV. Which is uh, which is a whole ton of fun, but we'll be back next week to talk about the uh, the start to the 2016 postseason as it will appear. We'll have most things decided. I shouldn't say most things. We'll have a lot of those spots spoken for as of next week. Um, so that'll be fun. Then I think we're going to have to do our second international podcast, which will be good the week after that. Our uh, second annual international. Second annual international podcast. Where but, we uh, both freak out at the fact that we're talking <laughs> instantaneously over a series of We can talk tubes. over the internet. It's amazing. <laughs> Are you yeah. sure you're in South Korea? Yes, I'm quite sure. <laughs> So that'll be coming up here in a couple of weeks as well as the playoffs approach closer and closer every single day. And uh, again, big thanks to Dan from Bakersfield and uh, send a kind note to the people in Bakersfield and in high desert. Um, And also if you're in Kinston, if you're in Fayetteville, uh, you can get a a baseball is back in Kinston t-shirt up on KinstonBaseball.com right now, which I think is super cool. Um, Get excited because you're, you've got some, some really fun nights coming up ahead as well for you. And uh, the 2017 season, not that far off because the 2016 playoffs are coming up real quick and we'll discuss those and a whole lot more when we return next week for episode number 74 of the show before the show podcast talk to you then bye hey rob bradford here you guys know i'm always up for a good mvp story and one of the best stories is wasabi technology wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams including 20 major league baseball teams like the red Sox and nhl teams like the bruins and vancouver canucks even the liverpool football club is getting in on wasabi action so why is wasabi the mvp well wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the amazons of the world are charging in fact wasabi is up to 80 percent less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data from wasabi's ai enabled intelligent media storage wasabi air to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals data deletion and ransomware wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data wasabi another boston-based championship team